This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. 50 years ago this week, Walt Disney World opened its doors. Walt wasn't alive to see his vision become a reality in Central Florida, but his dream for a theme park that improved on the original Disneyland in California has transformed Central Florida in the decades since. A vast swath of land was turned from swamp into a tourism hub, and the arrival of Disney World also signaled a profound shift in the identity of the region. Aaron Goldberg writes about this in his book Buying Disney's World, the story of how Florida swampland became Walt Disney World. WMFE's Talia Blake talked with Goldberg about Disney's profound impact on the economy and the landscape of Central Florida. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. How did Walt Disney settle on Central Florida as the East Coast location for his theme park? Uh, that's a great question. There were a few stops along the way. Ultimately, it was it was sort of all about the weather, to be honest. Um, it was the closest weather he could find to Disneyland. You know, except, you know, you know, they don't get as much rain over in Southern California, but it was almost in St. Louis. Uh, there was a, a look over it um, in the Niagara Falls, but it was too cold. Washington, D.C., again, weather issues outside of New York City, weather again. And then Florida sort of was like the sweet spot where, you know, all year round, you wouldn't have to go crazy with putting it all under one roof, which were like the early, you know, rumors, oh, he's going to enclose it and make air conditioning and blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, Central Florida and the weather sort of won out for everything. But I mean, how was a swampland appealing to him? It's crazy, right? Because a lot of folks on his team, some of the, the members who went out and actually went out to go get the land were actually pushing towards Daytona. He did, Walt did not want to be near the ocean. Uh, he didn't want to compete with the beach. Uh, he wanted Central Florida or he wanted, I shouldn't say necessarily wanted to fly. He wanted away from, you know, either coast. He wanted to sort of be in the center of the, of the state with I-4 coming together and 95, which would allow access for not only the, the, the entire state, but basically like the East Coast. He could hop on 95 and zip right down. But, you know, he was pretty, you know, without speaking for somebody that I didn't know, but, you know, all the years of research I've done, you know, he was pretty resilient. And once he got an idea in his mind, that was it. So it was sort of you know, it was moot that the land was swampland at times when they purchased the land. 75% of it was underwater during the year, but that didn't matter. He figured there'd be a way for him to make it usable, which which they obviously did. Orlando is a big tourist location and the money made by people visiting has a huge impact on our economy. Would that still hold true if Disney World was not here? Well, that's, that's another great question. You know, I kind of think Orlando or, you know, would kind of be like Lakeland, maybe. It's hard to say, but it not only did it change Central Florida, it changed the entire state. There's a, a little parcel of land within Disney pro- property called Bonnet Creek, and it was a parcel that they were not able to purchase. So one side of the land, the back is, is I-4, and then three sides are owned and bordered by Disney. So that parcel of land uh, was purchased before Disney started purchasing their land, and it was purchased by somebody in uh, Asia. And they randomly, sight unseen, bought this land because they figured, okay, it's near 95. It's not too far from the Space Coast. Perhaps we could do warehousing, industrial. So I think eventually, it probably, you know, with 95 not being too far and things like that, eventually maybe it would have grown, but it certainly wouldn't be what we see today. It would kind of would just be, you know, maybe another sleepy town. If you look at the rest of Florida down the middle, it's kind of, you know, kind of is what it is. Kind of is what it is. It is though. So I kind of want to piggyback off of what she said. With theme parks comes restaurants and hotels to accommodate visitors. And a lot of people living in Central Florida work in the service industry and hospitality is one of the leading job sectors. So do you think we would have leaned a little bit more towards a tech industry or like you were saying with those warehouses or something else had Disney not been built here? 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there could have been, um, you know, again, if you, if you think about the space coast and, you know, things like that, so you would have technology, you could have manufacturing, um, the land was still cheap regardless of whether it was, you know, entirely usable or not warehousing and, and transportation and logistics. You know, I always think back to, unfortunately, like COVID when COVID hit and Orlando and central Florida was hit so hard when the parks kind of, everything was shuttered and it sort of gives you like a, a, a snapshot of what life could have been like. I mean, it really, it, it was scary it, it, you know, to think about what, what would have been or could have been if Disney never showed up. I mean, obviously Tampa's not too far and there was, you know, there's Bush Gardens and things would have evolved, but it certainly wouldn't be like what we see now. And what do you think would have happened to those thousands of acres that theme park sits on had it not been built? You know, what would have happened to that land? I think it probably would have stayed the way it is or... Maybe there'd be more cows or, you know, maybe more pastures. Um, <laughs> Disney did a ton of work and tens of millions of dollars to make it usable. I don't know if somebody else would go that far. I mean, it, obviously, we all drive I-4 from time to time and you go start going towards Tampa and there's just such big, vast stretches of nothingness. And I feel like, you know, it could very well be the same thing. Who would invest to do water control to get this property usable again? I'm sure somebody would, but not roughly 30,000 acres worth. Mm-hmm. How has Disney World changed in the past half century over the past 50 years? Oh, I mean, to think about what it was when it opened, obviously technology is the ebb and flow of technology over each decade changes everything, it changes our society. But we're talking about 71, it was basically Magic Kingdom Park, very small sort of intimate resort or the vacation kingdom as they called it. And then the, the growth through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s is, is quite remarkable. I think at the end of the day, it lives up more and more to the original idea that Walt was going for with you know a city of the future, while it's not a city of the future, but it really is its own city. I mean, there's two cities, Bay Lake and 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 Lake Buena Vista. But I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people every day, tens of thousands spending the night eating, drinking. There's, you know, medical facilities, there's EMS, everything, the whole nine. So I think that just the evolution of of the parks and the theme park experience is, is you know, pretty remarkable. How does Disney continue to change Orlando and the central Florida area? Well, I think it's amazing that you could still see growth you know 50 years later you still see parcels of land being purchased and parcels being developed and you see new outlets and and new things like that and you would think that with basically like the number one tourist destination in in the country that would be maxed out one of the reasons why disney went to to florida to begin with or to start the the whole process over at the theme park was he was unhappy with what he achieved and happened um at disneyland so he bought he didn't buy enough land um, hotels, motels, restaurants popped up all over and it sort of ruined the allure that he was trying to create. So we come down to Florida and he buys more than enough land to give himself a buffer. And you would think that 50 years later, there would be no land left, but there's still an enormous amount of, you know, prime real estate, maybe not necessarily on the doorstep, but close enough where people can make a way or, you know, you always see houses booming. Um, I mean, the amount of apartments I feel like goes up in and around the areas, it's kind of crazy. There's always growth. And speaking of buying enough land down here compared to Disneyland, when Walt was buying the land, he was using a lot of fake names and kind of being really secretive about it, wasn't he? Yes. Yes. So the the object there was to try and get enough land that he wanted and needed without the public finding out so that obviously prices wouldn't go through the roof. So, you know, as I mentioned before, Disneyland came and anybody 
bought up everything they possibly could around him. So the goal was, okay, let's buy more than enough land. I think he initially said five to 10,000 acres is what he really wanted. We ended up with close to 30,000, over 27,000. And the way he really did it was cash payments. So he paid in cash to not have a paper trail coming back. He put the purchases in shell corporation names. So, you know, about a half a dozen names that didn't lead back to Disney. And he initially titled and deeded them into one of the attorneys that was making the purchases. They, he deeded them into his name. So basically, it was very hard to track down that it was Disney. Although, you know, the Orlando Sentinel, this was like, so, you know, in 1965, 1964, somebody spends $5 million worth of land, you know, in a small town. It's going to raise a lot of eyebrows. So it was like a weekly, several time a week column. Who, who's buying the land? Is it Ford? Is it an airline? Is it, you know, everybody had a rumor and a guess and their, you know, uncles, cousins, mother, brother in North Dakota said it was going to be this. And, you know, but yeah, so it was, it was like a, a bit of a, sound like a bit like a spy novel when it comes down to the fact that the, one of the people prospecting for the land was actually, you know, basically a, a huge CIA operative. His name was Paul Hallowell and Mr. Hallowell was an attorney from Miami, but was also um, one of the founding members of the CIA, then called the OSS. And while he's buying land for, for Disney, he was actually the paymaster for, he was funding the Bay of Pigs. So he's, you know, trying to topple governments and, and here we are buying land. So it, the dichotomy and the contrast between those two things is, is pretty remarkable. CIA to Disney, that yeah. is a mix I was not expecting never, at all. Right. Yeah. At all. Um, so what are the pros of having such a force like Disney in our backyard? And are there any cons? I, I try not to be a Disney apologist, um, but I think that, you know, there's obviously a ton of cons and there's a ton of pros. Obviously, we look at the economy before COVID and when things were rip roaring and ready, you know, they have about 70,000 cast members on site. It's, an, you know, an enormous amount of folks that brings industry. It brings people from all over the world. I remember reading something in 2016, like more flights internationally, you know, were coming into Florida than basically anywhere else. So it's great economy wise for the state. However, you know, we go con, it's like all eggs are in one basket. So we unfortunately have a, a you know, COVID situation and relies heavily on tourism. You know, people also complain about salaries and cost of living and, and wages. Um, you know, it's a huge glo- global multinational corporation. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, always, there's always enough for the shareholders, but there's never enough for the folks that are working, unfortunately, for whatever reason that is, I guess that's another topic. But I think overall, I think you have to think that it was a, a huge plus for the state. It changed everything. I think in the early days when it was announced that they were coming to the state, somebody said, you know, Walt will we'll we'll be like the most welcomed person since Ponce de Leon. So, I mean, everybody was ready for him to come. Do you think the pros outweigh the cons then? I think so. I mean, I, I would think so. Just look at the industry. Look at what, what came around it. Aside from Disney, so we then get Universal you know, there's SeaWorld, there's so many other uh, timeshares, there's, you know, a whole slew of things that come with the mouse being in town. I'm sure that the folks who are third, fourth, you know, fifth generation Floridians probably liked the living that they had in Orlando and Central Florida before they came. Disney came, the traffic's horrendous, I-4 is horrendous. Hopefully that will alleviate soon with, with the construction. But I think overall you have to, I- I'm sure history shows that most towns and places in the country would have killed to have Walt come in and he was getting offers all the time so I got to think that it was a good thing and lastly can you imagine a central Florida without Disney Ooh, no uh maybe I mean 
you know, I, on the coasts, absolutely. So Tampa to, to, to you know, the, to the Space Coast, absolutely. I, I think things are fine. But then when you run down the middle of the state and there's sort of like the dry spot, not really. But, yeah, I mean, it would be – I think the state would be so different without Disney just in general. It would be – that's a tough thing to, to try to wrap your brain around. Yeah, I mean, what would you be doing because you write about Disney? I, I, exactly. Listen, me and so many other people have glommed onto this company to try and make a living. So, you know, I'm glad they came. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting to see what the future holds for how things are going now that you know there's new leadership at the company within you know the past year or two. So it's interesting to see how things will go. Hopefully there's no acquisition. Hopefully nobody purchases them. I think that would be a bad thing. You know, people were flirting with that in the 80s and 90s and 2000s of hostile takeovers and things like that. So I hope things sort of stay par for the course. I think it would be best for, you know, the state, for the town. Um, there's still so much land. I mean, they still have like a, a third of what they purchase is not developed. So they could still really keep, you know, a third of 30, about 30,000 acres. That's a considerable amount. So maybe there are some new parks on the horizon. Who knows? WMFE's Talia Blake talking with Aaron Goldberg, author of Buying Disney's World, the story of how Florida Swampland became Walt Disney World. Up next, Disney fireworks are back and taking center stage for the company's 50th anniversary celebrations for the Orlando area theme parks. Seth Kuberski outlines what's ahead and he discusses what keeps fans coming back year after year. Nostalgia is Disney's ultimate brand. Creating that emotional connection with a ride so that you want to come back to it decades later with your children or your grandchildren is key to the way uh, they're able to charge the prices that they do. That's a hit on Intersection. We're back in a minute. I'm Matthew Petty. This is Intersection. Part of what keeps fans coming back to Disney World year after year is nostalgia for classic characters and rides from their childhoods. But the theme park company has also debuted technological innovations that have made their way into the mainstream, like touchless payment, for example. Seth Kuberski, Orlando Weekly columnist and co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Disneyland and The Unofficial Guide to Universal Orlando, says the blend of old and new is part of what makes the company tick. He joins us to talk about what Disney fans can expect over the next year and a half, and he reflects on some of the highlights from the past 50 years. Well, Seth Kuberski, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's always great talking to you. Well, Seth, tell us what Walt Disney World has planned for the 50th anniversary kickoff. Sure. Uh, the big celebration starts officially on October 1st, uh, but they have already started previewing um, some of the big components, which are the nighttime spectaculars. Disney Enchantment, which is replacing Happily Ever After fireworks at the Magic Kingdom, and Harmonious, which is the new replacement for the classic Illuminations at Epcot. And those big day-ending events are two of the biggest draws that are kicking off the celebration, uh, and they're both expected to last like the rest of the festivities uh, for at least 18 months. And that was something that during the height of the pandemic, when things had shut down, and even when Walt Disney World reopened, right, people were missing those fireworks displays. So I'm sure people are happy to see that back. And then to kind of enhance those fireworks with what you were describing, people must be really looking forward to it. 
Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest complaints I heard from uh, my readers is that you know, the theme parks were back open at full price, and while the rides were there, um, the live entertainment, the parades, the fireworks, the people really closely identify with the Disney experience were not. Um, so, you know, bit by bit, they've been bringing back those kind of nighttime uh, entertainments, and by launching these two new shows, uh, it's definitely a way of Disney to say, you know, big outdoor entertainment is back. Uh, they still, however, have not um, set a date for some of their other big shows like Fantasmic to return. So th that's still TBD. Does it feel like it's pretty much back to normal, though, when you take off your reporter hat and just kind of experience it as a park goer? Does it feel like everything's back to normal or does it still feel like we're in a different reality a little bit? It, it's a new normal uh, that we're slowly getting used to. Um, obviously, at, at Walt Disney World, masks are still mandatory indoors uh, when you're waiting in line for a ride or um, on an attraction. Um, and so that's, you know, still a little bit of a friction point for some guests. Um, but in terms of the operations of the rides, 99% um, back to where it was. Uh, live entertainment is still only at about 50%. Um, and I'd say the one maybe positive silver lining to all this is that they've stuck with their park reservation system. So while as a local, I can't always just go to the parks any day I'd like, uh, including on the first, uh, I'm shut out personally because I wasn't able to get a reservation. But it means that those who do get into the parks are experiencing uh, much shorter lines, um, a lot more elbow room than they would have in the past. So let's think ahead to the next year and a half because this isn't just a one and done thing, right? Disney being what it is, everything is meticulously planned out. They want to make sure people get their money's worth. And of course, also they want to make the most of this 50th anniversary. So what are we looking at for the next year and a half? Yeah, we're going to see things trickling out over the next year and a half. Um, obviously, now on October 1st, we've got those big nighttime spectaculars and we've got the Remy's Ratatouille Adventure Ride, which is a new 3D dark ride opening up in Epcot in the Paris Pavilion. Um, but we still are waiting for opening dates for the Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster that is going into Epcot, for the Tron roller coaster that is going into the Magic Kingdom, um, and uh, the Star Wars um, hotel is also going to be opening up. Um, so those are definitely reasons that they're giving for people to come back uh, later on in the celebration. Well, what have been some of the biggest changes that Disney's brought about in the time that you've been covering the theme parks as a reporter, Seth? Um, well, I'm, I'd say the first big shift came after September 11th. Um, with the hardening of security, uh, the implementation of, of uh, screening checks and things like that completely changed um, the, the park-going experience. Uh, and, you know, 20 years later, it's, it's hard to remember uh, how easy it used to be to just uh, walk up into a park. I'd say now that right now we're about to see the biggest change at Disney, which is the removal of the free fast pass system and the introduction of their new Genie Plus and Lightning Lane system. Uh, guests have gotten used to over the decades uh, a free system of scheduling return time so they don't have to wait as long in the standby queue. Um, now they're going to be obligated to pay at least $15 per person per day for that privilege. And some attractions are going to cost uh, even more a la carte on top of that. Um, so that's kind of a, a big change from the all-inclusive mindset that Disney has had to the uh, pay-as-you-go system. 
Now, we've spoken before on this program, Seth, about the so-called arms race when it comes to Disney and then Universal and then other theme parks raising their prices when that happens. And when you reflect on the price of a ticket today and what it costs for the most expensive, you know, even the cheapest day pass, more than $100, right, and what it costs when they open, it's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? it it's kind of hard to uh, compare uh, apples to oranges because I, I collect old Disney ephemera and I have a bunch of those old e-ticket coupon books. Uh, back in the day, you'd pay a very low price just to get in the gate, but then you would be paying for each attraction. Uh, and we're kind of returning to that time where you're, you're paying a much higher price to get in the gate, but then you're also going to be shelling out uh, on top for each attraction. I honestly, uh, when I first moved here, I had a top-of-the-line Walt Disney World annual pass, and uh, it cost me about a dollar a day. Um, and that has more than quadrupled uh, and has lost a lot of the privileges that it had. So uh, definitely more than keeping up in, with inflation, in fact, uh, far exceeding it. And to me, that's one of the interesting facets of the way Walt Disney World does business is the fact they're able to figure out you know, what people's pressure points are, how much they're willing to pay, and they can kind of segment off certain days and really split things up. And I think that comes back to what you were describing now, having to pay for those fast pass tickets. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this mythology that uh, Walt wanted to create a entertainment for the middle class that, you know, anyone could afford. Um, when you look at the kind of things that Disney is investing in now, um, Disney Vacation Club timeshares and uh, a, a Star Wars hotel that only has 100 rooms and is going to cost thousands of dollars per person per night. Um, they've clearly decided that the money is not in the middle class. The middle is in the 1% that made it through the pandemic with their... Uh, their incomes and their savings intact and uh, are, you know, looking to get out and splurge on uh, on that kind of family vacation. That's that's definitely what Disney is targeting now. Disney's also a pioneer in a lot of ways, I think, when it comes to technology, innovation and how those things are used, things like touchless payment, drone technology, the use of uh, simulation on rides, etc., so when you reflect on some of the technological advances you've seen rolled out at Walt Disney World, what are the standouts for you? Uh, you know, I can remember as a little kid going into Epcot and at the end of Spaceship Earth, they, they had the World Key kiosks, which was the first video screen that I had ever seen. Uh, you could talk to a person. Uh, and the idea of talking to a person through a screen uh, instead of a telephone was just magical. Now we all do that with FaceTime on our phones. And, you know, that's kind of the curse of Epcot. Uh, actually, Future World at Epcot officially no longer exists anymore. They've renamed it because, you know, trying to chase after the future, it's always catching up with you. Um, and that's how you end up with things like the Carousel of Progress, which is 25 years out of date. But definitely uh, the rides themselves, the animatronics, the robots, the projection technology is amazing. Um, but it's kind of the IT backbone, the infrastructure. Um, there was a lot of issues with the Magic Bands when they first came out. I think because they were a little ahead of their time. Now that we all have uh, tap to pay on our, our phones, you know, that was kind of what Disney was trying for 10 years ago, uh, putting it on your wrist before everyone had that in your phone. So um, some of the, even the, some of the things that are technological that seem like misses from Disney eventually work their way into the mainstream. It's interesting, too, thinking about the expansion of Disney as a company and what they've been able to fold into the Disney World experience. You know, Star Wars, for example, I mean, that's been a hugely successful attraction for Disney, and that wouldn't have come about except for the fact that they acquired the intellectual property. So 
Is that something you were kind of seeing when you started reporting on Disney? Did you sort of see this as going to be a natural progression of just how Disney World does business? Yeah, that was very much a product of the uh, Iger legacy. Um, When I came in, it was still uh, Michael Eisner, um, who did reach out to people like George Lucas to create the original Star Tours rides. Um, But it was always very much, you know, Disney was the brand, Disney was the identity, and anything they partnered with was uh, second tier. But uh, since Iger came in absorbing Lucasfilm and especially absorbing Marvel, that's completely changed, you know, the way we think of uh, what is Disney, what is is their brand. Um, And now you especially see in the uh, streaming world with Disney Plus, um, you know, they're having uh, coming up in November is Disney Plus Day. I guess we've declared it a national holiday uh, where they roll out all of the new product and it's going to be both virtual and uh, with live uh, events at the the themed park resorts on the cruise ships Um, so it's definitely saying that you know the product that you see uh, on disney plus whether it's marvel or star wars or disney feeds back into the theme parks and that's going to be a big component of their strategy going forward yeah in some ways it's not so much what is disney but what isn't disney because the company is just so vast and all-encompassing Never believed back in the early 90s that The Simpsons, which w- was uh, in its early years the ultimate counterculture cartoon, would welcome their Disney overlords uh, <laughs> with making Disney-themed cartoons with The Simpsons now. Never would have thought that. I guess that's a testament to the longevity of The Simpsons, right? If something sticks around long enough, Disney might just acquire it. Yes, yes. About the only thing that Disney cannot own is Universal. Um, <laughs> that's, that's about the only... Uh, people out there, um, I don't know if keeping them honest would be the right word, but giving them uh, enough competition to, uh, you know, keep them investing in their product. Well, thinking about Epcot, since you brought it up earlier, and the fact that some of those rides are clearly dated, but it's part of the fun of them. I think, you know, like the Carousel of Progress, it's fun to look at what people's vision of the future was 25 plus years ago. And then there are other rides that don't exist anymore, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, And, you know, the notion of a theme park ride built around submarines is pretty incredible. Are there some other rides that were maybe too ambitious that didn't click for some reason, but people think about them with some nostalgia still? Yeah, and, you know, nostalgia is Disney's ultimate brand. Creating that emotional connection with a ride so that you want to come back to it decades later with your children or your grandchildren is key to the way uh, they're able to charge the prices that they do. And I have a kind of a love for some of the misfit rides from the past. Uh, Magic Kingdom had an attraction called Alien Encounter that uh, later got turned into something called Stitches, which I did not appreciate. But the original Alien Encounter did not belong in a Disney park. It was a horror attraction inspired by the Aliens movies. You were strapped into a seat while a giant creature spat in you and and whispered in your ear. And uh, it was freaked the heck out of kids. And uh, I loved it. <laughs> and the, the other one that I will always have a soft spot for is Horizons, which was a giant, slow-moving dark ride in Epcot that was very... Um, optimistic about humanity's ability to conquer our technological and ecological problems and live in harmony uh, with the universe. And now it's a giant centrifuge called Mission Space that uh, mainly serves to make people puke. So that's, <laughs> that's you know, for me, that's kind of the story of the chain. Disney over the year has, has gone from being grand edutainment, um, you know, ambitious in 
its uh, ability to change people's hearts and minds um, to a place that just wants to thrill you. And, uh, and that's okay, too. Um, but there, there has something that's been lost in, the, uh, in its goals over the years. And people often talk about Walt Disney World and try and sort of match that with what they thought the vision of Walt Disney was, how he envisaged the place and what it is now, and the, if there's a disconnect there. But is that even a fair comparison, given the fact that Walt Disney World came about after Walt Disney himself was no longer around? Yeah, I mean, Walt, uh, you know, sat, laid on his deathbed and, and plotted out what he thought the, the Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, would look like, um, you know, on the ceiling of his hospital room. Um, but, you know, Walt was the dreamer and his brother Roy was kind of the doer. Um, and all of Walt's ambitious plans uh, for every single ride at, at Disneyland, you know, got got scaled back in some way just to match reality. And it was inevitable that whatever got built uh, would not be as grand as, as those uh, initial concepts. Um, I think that, especially given, um, you know, politics in Florida, I don't know if we would really want a perfect city where no one was allowed to own their property or have voting rights. Um, and that, you know, your every move was controlled by a corporation. The real dream of what Epcot was supposed to be did die with Walt the day he died. But that doesn't mean that Walt Disney World hasn't done some amazing things uh, with infrastructure, um, with renewables. Uh, they've got one of the largest solar farms in the state right now, uh, helping power a lot of their parks. Um, the creation of Celebration and Golden Oak for you know new forms of residential design. They have done a lot of things over the years that kind of all slowly add up to what Walt dreamed of. But that that overarching master plan, the idea of a city with a bubble in the middle, you know, that was probably too ambitious to ever really happen. So putting your futurist hat on for a moment, Seth, what do you think the next 50 years could hold for Disney in Central Florida? I think there is obviously more growth coming. Uh, Universal is building their epic universe. And if that hits in the way it is expected to, it has got to... Um, prompt Disney to make some sort of response. Um, I think you're going to see uh, more and more, though, uh, they're going to aim towards the higher end of the market. Uh, they're going to build more luxury options. They're going to more, build more timeshare options. Um, and, uh, you know, 50 years from now, I don't think it's going to be more affordable than it is now for the, the middle classes, unfortunately. And just thinking about the 50th anniversary celebration, Seth, what are you most looking forward to over the next year and a half? Well, I've been waiting a long time to get on that Tron roller coaster. I've seen footage of the version they built in Shanghai, and it looks like a lot of fun. Um, so that's pretty high on my list. And does that touch a certain nostalgia nerve for you? I grew up with the movie Tron. Um, it is goofy. Uh, the special effects look very dated today. But back in the 80s, uh, that kind of helped suck me into the idea of computers and virtual reality and uh, getting to finally climb on a, a light cycle bike and uh, and compete in that world. Um, that's, that's, that's what Disney does. It takes stuff that you dreamed about as a kid and makes it something physical that you can do. Well, theme park writer Seth Kuberski is a columnist for the Orlando Weekly and co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Disneyland and The Unofficial Guide to Universal Orlando. Thanks so much for your time, Seth. It's always good to speak to you. It's always great talking to you. Thanks. Still to come, a conversation about Disney and LGBTQ plus rights. Disney had 
um, rights for LGBT workers, insurance, and benefits, and um, FMLA packages far before other groups and companies in Orlando had. And we revisit a conversation about Walt Disney and food. Walt had intended the food to be as immersive and entertaining as the attractions themselves. That's when Intersection returns. Stay tuned. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Gay Days began at Disney more than 30 years ago. Since then, the unofficial event has grown, and so has Disney's reputation as an employer that's friendly to the LGBTQ plus community. For more on the relationship between Disney and the rights of LGBT plus people, we're joined by George Wallace, the executive director of the Centre Orlando. George Wallace is the executive director of the Centre Orlando. George, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Matt. So let's talk a little bit about Gay Days at Disney. It started in 1991, and although not sanctioned officially by Disney, it's grown significantly since then. What do Gay Days mean to you? So Gay Days has organically grown throughout the years. Uh, It started as a grassroots movement where a bunch of LGBTQ folks got together and said, let's meet in front of Disney and wear a red T-shirt. And now it has morphed into a week-long event, multiple events from Gay Days Orlando to Girls in Wonderland and One Magical Weekend and Red Shirts. And um, it's just really magical, um, to say the least, that Disney has embraced that, um, has been very supportive throughout the years. Mm -hmm. How has it changed in the time that you've been in Orlando? So I think it's much more mainstream now, and it's certainly on the radar Now people know that the first weekend of June is always going to be Gay Days. Um, It's not a secret. Mm -hmm. There's obviously been some pushback. Um, Conservative religious organizations, for example, have criticized Gay Days. They've called for a boycott of Disney at certain points. Um, What's your takeaway from that pushback and that criticism? Yeah, you know, and we get that here when we do Drag Queen Story Hour. There are always fringe organizations and groups that um, always try to boycott or voice concerns, but it's 2021 and we are in a new world and equality is moving forward. Um, I know that it just seems very small or minute just to have um, one day where people gather, but it is our day and we firmly believe and respecting each other, and I just wish that people respected us more. What do you think it was about Disney that sparked that first Gay Day celebration, and that was a natural place for people in the LGBT plus community to to think this is where we're going to gather and you know express our identity? Sure, I can only assume that Disney was chosen because of um, the visibility and the fact that. Disney has always been affirming to the LGBTQ community. You have to think that a lot of the theme park workers and and entertainment identify as LGBT. Um, So it just seems natural that they would want to celebrate in a place that um, celebrates them. 
was Disney important to the LGBTQ plus community before that first gay day in, in 1991? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, um, so many of the people that have moved to Orlando to work at the theme parks, um, I hear stories from people in the um, 80s and 90s that, you know, they graduated from high school and they're like, I'm going to Orlando. And Disney was the draw and it was the attraction to come and want to work for a company that is as magical as Disney. I've never been an employee of Disney, um, but I can only imagine that um, it's a great place to work. And Disney had um, rights for LGBT workers, insurance and benefits and um, FMLA packages far before other groups and companies in Orlando had. Right. And and thinking about that, I mean, that's a, a very practical and tangible benefit, right? Extending those health benefits to same-sex partners. Do you think that gay days, do you think, have an impact on that and, and sort of pushing Disney in that direction? I don't know, but I mean, the, the LGBT dollar is very strong. And I can only imagine that Disney would want to celebrate those that are helping line their pockets at the end of the day. LGBTQ people are going to Disney um, on a daily basis. I wonder, too, what you think, George, about the cross-pollination, if you will, or, or the, the influence or the impact of, of an event like Gay Days, which grew organically on some of the aspects of other aspects of popular culture. For example, uh, Bob Chapek, I think, was saying last year that he, he really wanted to emphasize diversity in some of the, the media offerings for you know Disney movies and, and, and other products. Can you sort of draw a line between what was happening at the theme parks and some of the other properties that Disney has a hand in? You know, I don't know, but it's always great to go to Disney and see Pride merchandise, and that's relatively new. I You didn't see that um, years ago, and now they have um, official Pride merchandise, and they have Mickey and Minnie rainbow ears and things that are sold around gay days and during the month of June, which is Pride Month, and October when we celebrate here in Orlando, which is LGBTQ History Month. So um, it's wonderful. And then Disney also partners with the center. They're hosting a career fair here at the center, which means that they are actively recruiting LGBTQ employees, which is wonderful. Is that a, a relatively new thing? Yeah, they're actually having their first one uh, in October here at the center, but Disney has um, worked with the center in the past and Disney has a great matching program with their volunteers. So we have several volunteers and board members who give of their time and Disney matches that dollar for dollar. I guess it's serendipitous in some ways thinking of that, you know, October is the, the 50th anniversary, at least the kickoff for Walt Disney World and then reflecting on the significance of that month to the LGBTQ plus community in, in Orlando. Yeah, it, it's very significant. It is LGBTQ History Month. And then, of course, we just celebrated 50 years of the gay liberation, so to speak, with the Stonewall Riots of 1969. So 50's a big number. Well, George Wallace, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. George Wallace is the Executive Director of the Center Orlando. Well, finally, we're going to revisit a conversation about Walt Disney and food, although this time the focus is on Disneyland in California. Author Marcy Carricker Smothers wrote about it in her book Eat Like Walt, which explores Disney's approach to food and how it helped shape the design of Disneyland. This conversation first aired in 2018. When you opened Disneyland to a preview audience in 1955, Walt Disney declared the 20 eateries at the park a land unto themselves. 
Author Marcy Caracas-Smothers explores the culinary history of Walt Disney in the new book, Eat Like Walt, The Wonderful World of Disney Food. Marcy Caracas-Mothers, welcome to Intersection. Glad to be here. Now, the Walt Disney you describe in this book comes across as kind of a man of fairly down-to-earth tastes when it comes to food. He liked hot dogs. He even based the distance between the trash cans (laughs) at Disneyland uh, on the time it took to eat a hot dog. Kind of an interesting little detail there. How would you characterize his taste in food from the research you've done for this book? Well, he's definitely a very simple palate, and his daughter, Diane Disney Miller, always explained it as he was raised very humbly Mm -hmm. and ate out of hash wagons, and so he never lost that taste. And one of my favorite stories in the book, food-wise, was when he went to a meeting at Westinghouse to pitch the World's Fair to them, and they served lobster salad. Mm -hmm. He got out of the lunch, he turned to his crew, and he said, well, that was a horrible lunch. Let's go get a hamburger and a Coke, you know? So (laughs) he really just liked really simple, plain foods, Mm -hmm. although he was not a very simple simple, plain man. He was, he was pretty humble, mm-hmm. but he was obviously extraordinary, still is. One of the great things about this book is uh, the illustrations. You've got some of the original artwork, concept designs for some of the restaurants at Disneyland and also photographs. It, well, the images, thank you. I mean, that to me is one of the things that you don't know until you sell the book to Disney. I mean, my proposal was based on the culinary history of Disneyland and my theory that Walt had intended the food to be as immersive and entertaining as the attractions themselves. Mm-hmm. Once I got into the archives and I started seeing all of those images that were concept art for the restaurants, talking to the people, everyone in this book knew Walt, no exceptions. There's no third person, including Walt's family. So when you look at some of these, you look at these photographs, people, it's one of the things I noticed the most people can't get over seeing them, including historians of some note that have never seen them before because 90% have never been published before. Mm -hmm. And of course, illustrations and photographs tell a story in a different way than words do. Here's another detail I found kind of fascinating. There was a tea lounge for the Incas. Uh, This is at one of the, the, you know, the, the studio's and the Incas were the people who, who inked the cartoons onto the transparent cells for the animation, but they weren't allowed coffee because it would make the, the caffeine handshake. Would make the handshake. Yeah. So at the 1940 Walt Disney Studios, there, in addition to the restaurants for everybody, there was a private club for men called the Penthouse, which had a full bar, a restaurant, gym, massage table. And the women who were inkers and painters in their building had the tea lounge. And, yeah, it was called the tea lounge because the inkers are the ones that trace the outline and the painters are the ones that fill it in. The inkers in particular had a very deft art, and they couldn't have any caffeine. They really didn't drink any alcohol. They were very careful to keep their hands from shaking. So mm-hmm. there would be tea time. Depending on where they were, sometimes it was tea with Lorna Dunes, and oftentimes it was tea with these Martino tea cakes, an iconic re- a bakery in Burbank, and actually – One of the recipes in the back of the book, every recipe, by the way, is vintage, authentic to Walt's era, are those tea cakes that you can find in the tea lounge. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the innovations. For example, the Plaza Inn, there were innovations like a conveyor belt to bust the dirty dishes back to the underground kitchen. What are some of the other innovations that Disney sort of worked into the the food offerings at at his theme parks? Well, in terms of mechanical innovations. You mean the one that you just mentioned, the Plaza Inn, was pretty phenomenal because Plaza Inn was the Red Wagon Inn first, and then Mm -hmm. it became... Because at 1955, when Disneyland opened, every single restaurant eatery was run by a lessee. Walt didn't have the money or the manpower to run, as he called them, the feeding operations. Mm -hmm. By 1965, he had taken back most of those leases, including the one for the Plaza Inn. So he added, thinking, this will be really smart. We'll have this special conveyor belt that will bring all the dirty dishes down to a kitchen below the restaurant. The problem was that there wasn't a conveyor belt going back up. So mm-hmm. while they could get the dishes down there, once they were clean, they had to lug them upstairs. So so that wasn't. And then the vending machines in Tomorrowland, another great example that you pointed out, 
Tomorrowland's famous for having run out of money by the time Disneyland opened. Right. They filled it with this thing called the Art Corner, which was hand-painted cells you could buy outside of Disneyland, which would never happen today. Lots and lots of chairs and tables. Wait, so you could you could actually buy yeah. examples of the You could buy animation cells at the Art Corner. And it's like, to, to most people, it's unfathomable. But yeah, that's one of the things they did to fill some of the space and have something to do wow. in Tomorrowland. How much would those things be worth today, I wonder? You know, I would have to ask one of my animation expert friends, mm-hmm. but priceless. Because now, you know, they don't, they archive them. They don't sell them anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? They realize what they are. They're history. Yeah. So the vending machines is, Walt had this vision for a giant automat in Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. Would have been round. You would have used, had both vending machines. Now think, this was 1955. And then there also would be, the actual when you would open the door and you could pick out not not put money in and, and take out say a tuna sandwich out mm-hmm. ran out of money for that so at the space bar they ended up with a small amount of vending machines just sort of an homage to the original idea but right. still pretty novel mm-hmm. at that time and Main Street USA too was kind of built on this image that Walt Disney had of of a place that he knew from his childhood right yes Marceline where Walt would say were the happiest days of his life Marceline Missouri he was only there about four years and you, one has to be careful because in this book everybody knew Walt no exceptions no third person it was vetted by four archivists and so you know one thing that we do know from all the people that have been studying Walt much longer than me is while it was based that or it had an homage to Marceline it really was an idea of any town USA and of mm-hmm. all the imagineers and artists they brought their import to it as well mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think Walt Disney would make of a place like Italy World in Bologna. It's built as the world's largest agri-food park and described as the Disney World of Italian food. What do you think? Yeah, of I that? know, I know of Italy, and I've, I've not been to the one in Italy, but I've been to the one in New York. Mm-hmm. Again, I think he would find it fascinating because it's food being entertaining. It keeps families together. You know, eating is something that we do. You know, to, as a group, oftentimes it's very social. It's very intimate. And the fact that you could be entertained while you eat, I think he would find – I mean, that's what he set out to do. I mean, he and, and did and executed in 1955. Mm-hmm. The only other place that might have predated Walt and he frequented it was called Clifton's Cafeteria in downtown Los Angeles. And Clifton's did have a bit of a – tropical theme and you know had some some little bit of show going on there and that'd be the only other thing that i know before disneyland that had this immersive eating experiences marcy caracas mothers you've got a list of places that uh walt disney liked to frequent off the park property some of them are still open some of them aren't just tell me about some of those those places that people can still go where he would have sat down to eat lunch for example this is a very cool story so at the end of the book process, you know, you're already in layout, so there's only so much real estate. You know, you can only use so many words because that's all the room is now. I asked the archivist, and in particular my friend Kevin Kearns, who's amazing at the Walt Disney Archives, could you tell me where Walt ate when he wasn't eating at home at night, which was almost every night, and where he went off the lot for lunch? It took two archivists one week to pour over every diary of Walt Disney's until the day that he died, and they gave me the list. It's a very special list, and it's in the book. So truncated because I couldn't put all the detail. But where most people, if you're going to, if you're in Los Angeles, will make the pilgrimage is to the Tam O'Shanter, which is where Walt worked with the nine old men before he had his studio, and it's mm-hmm. still there. There is one kind of interesting fun fact. There is a table. They'll ask you, do you want to go to Walt's table? 
And if you ask for it, it's table number 31. But the truth is, that's a fan experience that the Imagineers made for people. They left like a little doodling that looked like maybe Walt's pen had ingrained the wood. That's really not where Walt sat. Mm -hmm. I found that out by Tony Baxter. Again, everyone in this book knew Walt, no exceptions. So where's the real place that he sat? Well, it's just right around the corner. It's actually not a table. It's a booth. And it had pegs on it, number 35. It had pegs on it to hang hats. Or when you wanted privacy, there was this big sort of velvet blanket that covered so they could be inside and not be seen. Hmm. That is where Walt worked with his nine old men. But no matter what, even if you don't get table 31 or 35, the Tam Shanter is probably the one. And the smokehouse is still there near the Warner Brothers studio where he used to go. Mm-hmm. He really used to, he loved eating at home. He had his own cook and housekeeper that Walt referred to as Mary Poppins. Her name was Thelma Howard, but the nickname was Fufu because Walt and Lily's first grandson couldn't say Thelma. And she was the cook for some 30 30 years. years, Everything from scratch. And probably some of my favorite stories because, again, most of this stuff has not... Some of it's been reported and written about before, but a lot never has, including that chapter about what life was like at home for Walt and his and his family. And that's one of the highest compliments I get from people that read everything saying, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Conversely, when I put in things that I think a lot of people know, it's the same way that Walt intended Disneyland to be when he was building it. It's for the first time people come to the park and the hundredth time. So you can't assume that everybody picks up Eat Like Walt knows the very basic things that my geeks know. So I include them for the person that's new to Walt. And it's the same thing at Disneyland. You know, you when I well, you know, because I care so much about the park and about Walt, when I'm on Pirates of the Caribbean and I see people taking out their cell phones, looking at their text, you know, lighting up a dark ride and talking, it upsets me because I don't know if somebody's on that ride for the first time and I want them to experience it the way Walt intended it. Well, Marcy Carricka Smothers is the author of Eat Like Walt, The Wonderful World of Disney Food. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and I'd appreciate it if your readers want to check out eatlikewalt.com. There's one really cool feature. There's a map, an interactive map, so you can press the pin. You can see what's there now at Disneyland and what was there in Walt's lifetime. It's pretty special, and it's only at eatlikewalt.com. That conversation first aired on Intersection in 2018. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for today's show from Talia Blake and Danielle Pryor. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.